Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. I have to apologize to everyone for missing a week in the programming schedule, but I I seriously tried to get this episode out on time. Uh, This last week, my partner and I moved from Austin, Texas to Santa Fe, New Mexico, so that we can start a family here and I can work full-time at the Santa Fe Institute without losing my mind going back and forth between Santa Fe and Austin every two weeks. So here we are, and um, lots of exciting developments on the horizon, but I think I did learn a thing or two about my limits this week uh, in between closing shop in Austin and uh, loading and unloading a 15-foot U-Haul, although admittedly we had a lot of help from our wonderful friends. But if you ever want to know what it's like to lose your mind trying to figure out how to fit a 1950 square foot rental into a 570 square foot rental, I'm your boy. (laughs) So anyway, it is with great pleasure that I offer this second part of this wonderful conversation with John David Ebert, Michael Aaron Kamins, and Ikiyu Sojin. Uh, obviously, that is a pseudonym, a reference to the rebelliously sensual Zen monk. At any rate, three very smart and interesting guys who, when we sat down in person, uh, wonderful things emerged out of it. And it's a real pleasure to finally get to see this one through. Uh, but first, I want to give a quick shout out to the new Patreon supporters, as as well as people who have upped their Patreon pledges. Uh, Jed Disentrope, Darren Basil, Ben Lockhart, and Rian Bevan. Thank you all so much, uh, as well as to the folks who have been sending one-time donations to at future fossils on venmo Uh, that was really sweet to wake up to that wonderful message this morning thanking me for the podcast so those of you who have been tracking this show know that i have a grown-up job now for the first time in my entire life i'm not simply relying on subscriber gratitude to survive uh, but My life is much, much fuller than it used to be, and it's getting harder and harder to find the time to continue putting out the show on a regular basis. And the more folks are helping subsidize the extraordinary time and energy it takes to release every one of these episodes, uh, something on the order of five to 15 hours a week, realistically, just to record and, and edit and publish everything. Not to mention the time it takes to research the guests and to uh, inspire them to appear on the show. And if I were not so grateful to the restaurant full of people that are paying for this podcast every month, I don't know that I would feel a serious responsibility to continue. I mean, frankly, I'm kind of over the conceit of this show that it is primarily for a large but unborn audience, and I'm really interested in cultivating something wonderful with the living listeners that I have. On that note, our first Patreon sci-fi book club discussion, exploring the wonderful, freaky, totally subversive and challenging work of science fiction, Blind Sight by Peter Watts, 
will be on January 31st. I think we'll probably hop on a Zoom call for about two hours, maybe more, to talk about that book. And everyone who supports the show on Patreon is welcome. So uh, for more information, hop on over, drop in two bucks or whatever. Uh, You can always cancel after the book club meeting if you decide we're a bunch of fools. (laughs) Or, uh, you know, or just stay on it. And it would be great to have you in that conversation because I think discussing sci-fi is a fantastic way to anchor and apply all of the philosophical ideas that we discuss in this show. What kind of futures we really want to help usher into being. Uh, If that's even a correct way of thinking about time, I'm not convinced it is due to a decade-long preoccupation with the evidence for retro causation, uh, if that's even the right way of thinking about that. Anyway, you're all wonderful. I adore you. And enjoy this episode. It's it's fantastic. So, <laughs> thanks and enjoy. So we're talking about snow crash and the decay of language and how like having a universal translator allows everyone to have their own language. And oh, interesting, yeah. You know, and so you get you get to a, a point where you've sort of taken the the epistemological question as far as you can possibly take it in terms of like are other people are other entities conscious? You know, because yeah. I mean, that's the that's I think I think that's what's going on with this the, this being the hardest question to come out of DMT space. Like, are these things so really questions. are these things really aliens? You know, are yeah. these things really like are these things really there, or are they in in a sort of Jungian not Jung but Jungian sense, right? Mm-hmm. That these gods are most people are are, are <clears throat> sort of want to misinterpret that as being that the gods are merely parts of our own yeah merely something being projected so so I was John about this another archetypes are like living beings right that's how Crowley saw them in the tarot deck he saw that so there's so the thing is like if you buy into a non-duality there's no difference between the inside the outside so you have the inside uh, Jungian projection and you have the outside uh, distinct alien or uh, whatever yeah, things projection, but really they could be just the same thing along this cycle that you are constantly experiencing. But but then you get into subtler questions about agency. Like it's still the case that if the thing is primarily just a symbol projected into your your virtual reality by your body, that it does in some sense live out outside of you. Like, even if we're assuming non-duality, you still get into, like, causal sort of relationships within that, yeah. right? And so you, see, you can still ask, like, so is this thing just... I mean, maybe it's the distributed agency of this landscape speaking through my body, and therefore it's, a, a, in a sense, a uniquely human, if, you know, also transcendent thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then it's not necessarily, like... The, the question remains, like, is it conscious, except through me? And the answer in that case would be no. Hmm. Whereas, like, there's the sense in the, in the sort of more basic 
version of this conversation where it's like the simple, like the naive realism, like does it exist outside of me? Where it's like if this thing, even though it is distributed, still has its own sort of agency, its own consistent thing that is more than merely something that shows up for people. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what Tim Morton's getting at with hyper-objects. Right. You know, that's the question is like, you know, we basically can't answer that question, and so we're stuck uh, treating every object that we interact with as though it might be like the face of some deity that we, we're not really capable of perceiving. See, well, James Hellman would say that, that that's really important, that we, that's what the psyche does, you know, and that, that's what soul, that's like, that's what you have to do that to have psychological life. You know, to personify it. Yeah, things. so that kind of actually reminds yeah. me of Taleb. you got to avoid the risk of ruin on this particular subject. Say more. Um, man, it's hard to say. Well, it's, it's almost like Pascal's wager, right? You have to avoid the risk of ruin by just up increasing the probability of your survival as oh. much as we can. So by going along with them as conscious, so just accept that they're real, so that'll help you. Sur- you have a, like a dog going along with the, some new owners, so just go along with that they're going to feed you and take care of you, that we should just go along with these archetypal images. I, for one, the, welcome our new squid overlords. Squid overlords, <laughs> yeah. That shows up I like the flying pizza dude, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What is that? The flying spaghetti monster. Yeah. yeah. But, so yeah, I think there's something to that, although the question of like, what happens if you disregard the sapience of this table? I think most people are just going to like laugh at you. Uh, but maybe that's a sign of how crude we are. You mean that, there's, that they're going to laugh at you because there's no be- beings above the sapience at the table? You mean? Well, just that, just that, like you know, this line of reasoning gets us into some very like freshman dorm room mushroom trip kind of spaces where, like, my you know, uh, you're, you're asking like, I'm aware of the mug. And the mug is aware of me, you know, and I am just the mug experiencing itself. Some, something interesting that you might find interesting was that um, Akio was telling us about a DMT trip he had that featured a clown. And, and, the, and the clown, and he'll tell you about it in a second, but the clown is this thing that shows up in all these DMT trips. And I just read this book, not by Michael Pollan, but by another another guy who just put out a book called It's, about, it's Psychedelics and... and no, I don't want to do DMT. It's like it's you've ruined it for me because I, I don't want to see a clown. <laughs> yeah, so so John, imagine Melwolf, but like a thousand times more. Yeah, I agree. Let me I'm sorry. Let me, let me set. Let me set. This is a great place to take. This. Yeah, let me set. Let me just set it up, and then the will tell the story. And I mean, and then me and John have this whole archaeology of the clown. John had this whole. We kid you not, the archaeology of the clown. And Michael and I mapped it out yesterday. We need someone that can look up the name of the guy that wrote this book. Um, But he just the book came out recently. I think it's called Other Worlds, and it's it's a book on psychedelics, but on on psi. You have that. You brought it with you. Yeah, I didn't bring it with me today. It was the one book I didn't bring. Why didn't I bring that with me? Okay, but um, that's all right. Don't worry. So he has a whole chapter on there about what this DMT creature is that people are seeing. He saw it as well. And, and trying to examine this clown type. So, so have you seen this thing? I haven't seen it. Nikki is in the has seen it, and I know other people who have he's seen done it as DMT, well. the actual yeah, the actual smokable minutes, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. compound. And <clears throat> did you encounter entities? I mean, I've encountered 
entities, but I actually haven't smoked DMT. But you have done it. He, he yeah. has. It, it cool you, yeah. It all right, all right. Uh, and there's this common, right, and so there's this common theme of the, the, clown, of the clown, you know, this clown archetype or whatever that he saw, and I know other people that saw it. McKenna talks about these machine elves that kind of sound like clowns, and then and then we started thinking about what what is the what is the clown? What is it even? What is the clown? As My a, guess was Harlequin. The, the, and is a, it a real being? Originated right? like an Italian comic Luke opera, Davis. you know, <clears throat> uh, as as Harlequin, and then it got passed over and westernized. I mean, I'm just making a guess. So okay, so talk about that because that's that's. Yeah, I want to hear. Well, the Harlequin historic. The Harlequin is a figure who dresses in a motley outfit. Yeah. you know, it's all patchwork. Associated um, with the jester, and a right? funny hat. Yeah, and he's sort of like the, the, the funny figure in Italian comic opera. You know, he's he's always turning up. Picasso liked to paint Harlequin quite a bit, and uh, it's just this patchwork figure. It's like he's not. There's a he's lacking wholeness. But for precisely that reason, he can say whatever he wants, and we give him permission to do. We that. compare him to the fool in the tarot oh, deck. Wow. Yes. Right. Yeah, right. And the interest and the Joker in the in the traditional card deck. We were talking about this yesterday. The interesting thing, why it can do what it do is it, it, what it does is because it's not nailed down to any signified. All the rest of the pack is the series of fifty-two signifiers. Each one of them is nailed firmly to a signified, mm -hmm. um, so you can't mess with the meaning. But the Joker is the only one. In games that allow the Joker, that uh, is a floating signifier, so you can plug him into any. And he messes with the meaning. Sign regime that you want to. Um, so he's sort of already like looking ahead to this sort of postmodern, deconstructed Derridian landscape where we get the sense that all the signifiers now have come unglued for, from their signifieds and they're floating now. So we can, uh, in, in the negative sense, is that it represents the disintegration of our traditions, so we have to kind of be comfortable about letting all of that go. But on the other hand, it's a new opportunity to create new meaning systems out of these yeah. sliding signifiers that don't stick to signifies. We can do whatever we want with them. You also, so it's an opportunity. But I, you also said that means all signifiers become clowns, and Donald right. Trump is a clown, right? People yeah. compare him to a clown. Right. So when I relate this right? I mean, to a more complete uh, political theory, there's a lot of people nowadays who are into free speech, who are also into this thing called patchwork, which is basically this decentralized system of city-states where each one of them have their own governance system. Sounds and, a lot like the post-American landscape of Snow Crash, which is not a pleasant place to be. Let's be clear about that. Right. You know, there's, there is that issue of, and I, I want to get back to clowns here for some strange reason, <laughs> right? But but I, I know you can't stop thinking about it. The, yeah. Once it starts, the the clown. It, you know, that's what right? the clown does. And it hijacks it. your brain. So this is when you map the clown onto the political system. That's what what it is. Interesting. The, uh, yeah. the patchwork and the, the Trump, they're the same thing. Well, I mean, wouldn't you say like decentralization as a response to that yeah, sort so, of pathological? So really, this is a symbolic look at how accelerationism formed. Why they like Trump and they like the patchwork? It's all part of this uh, symbol system. But you know, then you get into this is the fool in the Crowley deck. For, oh, know. there's a tiger on that card too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of different animals. He, that's that's um. He also looks like part. He looks like Zelda, by the way. They're he green, does kind of yeah. The green. It looks, so it looks like Ebola riding the tiger. So <laughs> so what is uh? Tell us about your DMT trip. Oh man, it's like, so that was my second trip, and I had uh, my friend over, 
and he's a real interesting guy. Like I do all my trips with him. So he was my friend from. Uh, wait, actually, I shouldn't talk talk too much about. It. Yeah, it's, well, he's, he's, he's neither here nor yeah, there. He, we already know too much. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so so that was my second trip and his first trip. So we went to my room and we just took as many hits as we can. I think it was like three pretty big breath, and we were there for like. 15 minutes so I got into this room after being sent through the hyperspace got into this very concrete room and it's like eight dimensional non-euclidean geometry and it's a lot of different colors I think man they're all reflecting each other so you see a lot of colors but really there's like one theme to the color which is I think mostly red white and black but really it's like all the colors were there it's hard to describe. But anyway, this clown was jumping in and out of me. and But it's also kind of unfolding itself and folding back into itself at the same time in these weird fractal patterns in eight-dimensional space. And it's almost, it's almost like Cthulhu in a way. It's got the tentacles wrapping in and out of itself and jumping out in and out of me at the same time. And that was the most terrifying experience of my life. I've never felt fear like that ever. And was this like a? Did you see this like a virtual landscape that like unfolded you? Um, I was in like there. like your uh, visual cortex has been hijacked somehow by the yeah, drug. Yeah. Yeah. So th this is. So I should actually clarify. There's um, closed eye visuals and open eye visuals. So that was a closed eye visual. And but the thing is like you almost feel like there's a force drag you into there that you shouldn't open your eyes. It's almost like your eyes are shut down by gravity and it's, they're not allowed to open. And if, and if you open your eyes, something bad's gonna happen to how, how you are in the DMT world. Mm. So it's almost like one of those uh, survival online game, online survival games. If you log off, your character's still there. That's why you gotta build a house around it. So it's like oh, that feeling. Shit. So, it's like, so it's like, man, if I open my eyes and log off, log out some someone's the clown is just going to get me and kill me in the game it's like fuck I'm still dead that's really interesting yeah. because I do think that I was the first my first experience with ayahuasca in Peru was actually two different nights mm -hmm. in 2011 mm -hmm. and um, I have very little experience with this but like anyway out of that there was I encountered this uh very different entity, which is sort of, I don't want to get off this topic mm -hmm. and into the topic of clowns, except for the fact that it was a mantis-like creature, and that's very often also reported from DMT. Yeah, mantis-type stuff. And also that there are real, living species of mantises that look like clowns, because they're like, they're like they evolved to look like, uh, like, pet like orchids, like flower mm -hmm. petals. You know, and they're very popular on on like Pinterest and stuff like that. You know, these these clown-looking mantises. So that's just a weird connection. But anyway, this uh, this being explained to me, and and John, this is where I want to take every conversation, and uh, uh, with the people who I feel like can hack it, because um, this, I feel like you have the the sort of study of uh, cultural matrices for me to make sense of this whereas like for me this was an experience 
that I've been plugging in cultural reference points to ever since, but I, right. I, I didn't have like a, a, a scaffold for this at first. And it was saying um, to me basically that that kind of extraterrestrial being that it is was actually appearing to me through projection from the like hot, dense plasma at the center of the galaxy, which is so hot and so dense and so highly uh, gravitic that no biological life could possibly exist there. But the electromagnetic fields of that are so complex that it generates like a holographic ecosystem of stuff in this superfluid matrix. Sheldrix is about the sun. And that there are basically like dragons on the sun and genies at the, that like the, the, the Efreet are like so, so real you saw beings. this on your ayahuasca trip? Yeah, that it explained to me that it was basically of a class of beings that are like the beings of flame. But it appeared to me as molten metal. And it was basically saying that that's that's our physical, our actual physical uh, reality is is of the that like plasma, of, a plasma. plasma of molten metal at like unthinkable gravity. We've been talking about the plasma petrol. We were, by the way, yeah, yesterday we were talking about. That. But they're saying, but we don't. The point being, he's like to to your trip. He was saying we don't. It was saying we don't experience ourselves in this way. We just appear to you in this way because you are colder and slower than we are. But. You have a plasmatic component. Like you live on this planet with like an ionosphere and your bodies are made out of electromagnetic forces. Right. And like you have an electromagnetic body, but because you live in a cold, slow place, your awareness and evolutionary trajectory has concentrated itself on the, on the solid form of consciousness rather than on the plasma form of consciousness. Yeah. Dude, I'm visualizing all this Man, and this it, it looks like an Alex Gray painting. What, what you were just describing, and the, the way he's got all the yeah, matrices. Yeah, and meanwhile, he's within like... matrices, within matrices. Meanwhile, this chrome eyeless, eight-foot-tall chrome mantis, like black chrome mantis, is like piercing me with these like long, like jointless pinchers. Like, mm -hmm. like just like, but it's doing, it's like helping me. You know, it's like, just hold still, we're it's like taking care of some yeah, shit like, for you. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's like cleaning me. Like, like, it's like surgery. Yeah, that's yeah. Sh shamanic. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. that your experience, this is the thing, is like, I think that Holy that shit, shit is going that, on. That might time. be the same experience as yours, but just interpret it a different way. Right, well, I, I think that the fact is that there are things jumping in and out so of us all the time. That there are things that are like, other things that are like, performing surgery on us. But that when we get into these spaces, it's like, some of them, you're in a, you're trying to make dualistic sense of a non-dual experience, right? Where like you don't actually have a boundary, and so when the more you try to enforce a boundary on that experience, the more it feels like a violation. You know, the more it feels like you're being attacked because those. That was the difference between yeah, my first yeah, and I my second. Yeah, I think that might be it. DMT trip. Oh, oh, no, but oh you're helping me. I want to add. Oh no, I'm being violated. I want to throw a difference in here, okay? Because yeah, but I think there's a significance as to why it's perceived as a clown. Because a clown is also... Because it's funny. It tickles, the, man. No, but the something jumps in and out of you. The clown is satanic. <laughs> the clown tracks back to Mephistopheles and Lucifer. The clown is is Tickles. evil in a way. It's like that you're having an experience. And I'm not saying this in the sense that I think it's literally evil, but mm -hmm. in, in this Western tradition, the clown is... is That's uh, Mephistopheles. That's Lucifer that you're experiencing. Mm -hmm. That you know, That's the that's what he would show up as. And John had this whole thing from Campbell that you're this. Yeah. So the archaeology of the clown goes further back from um, what was the one guy you were just saying? The courtship, court jester guy? Harlequin. 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 And it goes back to what you were saying about shamans that shamans were uh, 
made into they clowns. They became the clowns. In, in Native American myth, the, like in, in Hopi, when the, colonial, myth, um, the shamans uh, get delegitimized as clowns, and they appear as, as clowns because they're making fun of this discredited... Who's making fun of them? They become the, 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 the Hopi. The Hopi big ego. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the big other of the Hopi. It's, mm -hmm. it's super ego. But who regards made, these right. shamans as... Clowns? They're anarchic. They use that you, to delegitimize them. Yeah. And to so, make them into a so joke. So they delegitimize so them. The, so very so so How many clowns do we have? Clown. Hold on, hold on. How many clowns do we have that are like... They're older gods that have been delegitimized and they're inside right. there. This is what we're trying so to do. So the clown is one way to yesterday. delegitimize a shaman. Yeah. It's one way to delegitimize... Or another another group that so that's, what's that's in our a western clown? Pull that, that western clown yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, in one it in is a, hey. you're fun, you're trying to be funny, but you're trying to do something important in society to communicate a message. Well, that's what comedians can get away with all kinds of yeah. a yeah. fool card. They can right. they float around. Yeah, they can, they're supposed to have the license to do that. So I don't they, understand why they're all getting in trouble. Like noblest yeah. trolls yeah. represent that, and then you have legit trolls also that are just like you know they just they're boner. Probably like two years ago, I was trying to write this manual on how to do trolling properly. It's almost like this like tantra technique. It's like you gotta troll in this right way to like, <laughs> so that you can actualize your goals and position yourself in a way where you are kind of. I think you've taken trolling and made an art way. form out of it. You know, I've yeah, been yeah, watching your right. tweets. His and tweets like, are like the best. He's like inventing a new genre, and we, they're so good. I don't even want to tweet because it's like. Akuyu's doing it for me. Yeah, he's perfect. Uh, yeah. value. Yeah, so yeah, I am. Right. See, right. So, so this idea was kind of yeah, right. somewhat confirmed exactly. because uh, this one guy on he has a pretty good podcast too, by the way. So Vincent Horn. Okay, he, I he know Vincent Horn. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so he he actually liked that thread of mine saying how trolling is kind of like Zen meditation. That's well, awesome. Yeah, Vince, Vince and I are both. Uh, expats of the Ken Wilber integral scene. Actually, we knew oh. each other living in Boulder. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, kind of Because I know that he, he <laughs> tries to combine McLuhan and and Buddhism, but I didn't know about the Wilber thing. Yeah, well, you know, it's you like, lived up in Boulder for a while. For four years. Yeah, oh, I, know. I lived there for two. John did too. Yeah. yeah. Which two? Uh, that would have been oh uh, nine and ten. We were there at the same time. You're kidding me, really? No, I was two thousand seven to eleven. Oh my god, that's crazy. That weird. That is weird, yeah. It's life is stranger. The older I get, and I'm I'm gonna turn fifty this month, uh, the stranger it seems to me. You know, it, it's like you would think that it would be the opposite paradigm that as you get older you acquire this wisdom, you have this intelligence, and you, so you're figuring it out. But it's no, it's been the opposite. It's like it's getting more and more mysterious. It's like I'm trying to cover everything, but I can't it's the stuff that oh, keeps no. happening, like that Uber driver that picked us up yesterday who had attended Pacifica graduate uh, school. Oh, yeah. He was there for a while, and he was a young in. He's like, I know astrology. Yeah, that's where I was. It was, was <laughs> so random, right? It was just a random Uber driver. And the dude yeah. was totally into Joseph Campbell and astrology, and, and he knew it. He was talking about the transits. Well, well that's when you right. wonder, did Google, uh, like, get... You know, extend what what hyper object extended its tentacles into the Uber algorithm, so that guy ended picking you up. It's a synchronicity. You know? yeah. It's a well, synchronicity. I'll go back to the idea of the clown. So, yes. so are you, are you, I know it's <laughs> you, it's the clown. It's a clown for a reason. He, he like sticks to you. Well, it's because wait, it's what all, you said. The, so, it's the devil because so, we're because we've yeah you know, we need to like put it somewhere. We, right. So my interpretation is it's not the devil. It's really. The clown is really the old wise man. He's the well, Taoist yeah. sage. Yeah, right, uh, right. So there's this one archetype in uh, Taoism, in like Chinese 
in the Christian culture, tradition, there's only one. That's, that's Christ. Called, that's, that's called uh, the La Wantong, which is kind of like the old the old kid who's like he's like super wise, but he does like silly childish things, like Milton Erickson. Yeah. What was his name again? What what the 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 boy that you were just talking the about? name? Is there, oh oh, that's it's not a it's not a one character. It's a archetype, I think. What's it, what's this, what's it called? You La Wantong. Law and wonton. Law. Law. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And he's like the trickster archetype. Uh, not not exactly trickster. Well, I guess could be, but like this, always this very very old person who's probably like 150 years old with the long, uh, white beard, long white hair. So like drunken yeah. master is an example. Yeah, yeah, of that. yeah. Oh, that's great. yeah. 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 It's the Latsu archetype. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the major archetypes in China. Yeah, and that's a when you wise yeah. old man. Yeah, that whole uh, thing, like, shut up, old man. What do you know? No, but they're like, yeah, that's a different world over there. They're like, yeah. speak, old man. You know? Yeah, except for the old man is actually the child. He Nietzsche's uh, the camel, the the right. lion, the child. The well, the guy, the guy that dis- well, that's the, 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 thing, the guy that disrespects the wise, the crazy old man in the in that like trope is always getting his ass kicked in thirty seconds, like, <laughs> like, like monkey in, in Journey to the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's always yeah. The, the only people that don't respect that guy. Seem to be like you know cruising for a bruising. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, whereas in the in the West it's entirely opposite. Like we we're like that. You know that. That's just... Yeah. Well, Merlin was kind of like that. For, well, for, that was the closest that the Christian West got to having a wise old man. Yeah. Than... So that's the and, and Faust maybe kind of also the SJW Faust was rejected by the yeah no yeah so in the West what what so the SJW phenomenon in the West I think that's because. There's no goofy, wise old men here. Like, you don't really view the Elder like that. Well, that's yeah. why I like Zelda, because it kind of, Zelda recaptures that for the West. It's got the whole Merlin yeah. tradition and the yeah, Knights Tower Table the... and that whole... There was a time when Christianity had that that mythological landscape to it, and then it doesn't anymore. Even Thompson was into this whole... Or he had this idea, this, this what Christianity, this Christian Irish Christianity that could have happened if or no, what was it that the Vikings didn't... Um, yeah, Irish Christianity, exactly They, they right. didn't invade a certain yeah. place that there would have been a different... Lindisfarne. Oh, that's yeah. Lindisfarne. Yeah, was. yeah. I mean, that was... Yeah. And that's why it was such a mindfuck. Uh, calling back to episodes 42 and 43, where <laughs> I interviewed Bill Thompson about his Lindisfarne retrospective. Um, that was the thing that so that always confused me about his decision to name this this planetary think tank group uh, this renaissance of planetary culture, Lindisfarne, because it was totally self-defeating. The idea, the idea that you're gonna like rhyme history mm-hmm. by saying, "Here is our like last bastion of visionary mystics." Yeah, the holding Irish out, fight in him, though. Yeah, holding out against this, gonna, this sort of fight him the, up, the, you know the collapse of civilization. <laughs> it's like he he started on false premises, like, and he complains that this is why you know he he, he like bitches about. You, you're mowing Thompson down? I love William that, Am Thompson. I hearing this right? I love him. <laughs> but this is my one critique, is that he bitches about... You called Buckminster. me out when I was doing it. You were no. like, fuck you, no, man. Listen, I'm, listen, I'm not going to put your Wikipedia page back up. Forget that. <laughs> if you're dissing Thompson... <laughs> listen, I love him. I am, we all I love respect him. We all love everybody. But, we do but I think that he made a mistake in framing it as defeat, even if he's right, and the, yeah, fuck, the yeah. fucking thing is, the older I get, the writer he is. Yeah, I know. you know, the it's, more obvious it is that we are in a collapse phase. You know, that's but Spangler. 
But but at the same time, I I, I turned Thompson on to Spangler, um, by the way. Yeah, but you have to. <laughs> that's me. I, you have to be the optimist all the time. Well, but exactly, we'll transform it. That's like, exactly. You know. That's it. Is that is that to the degree that you just sort of accept it, you're not going to win. To the degree that you're like, aha, but we can be canny about this. And you know, his thing was, um, you know, he he bitched about Buckminster Fuller being yes. a media. Whore, basically. Yes, I that, remember that. That he was just like Buckminster Fuller was just he would run downstairs to see if his name was in the newspaper that morning. And it's like so oh, what? It's like it's like, yeah, but you know what he did? I would too. <laughs> you know what he did? Is that, then you're like, on the other hand. Is so that you know, he he was a far more effective uh virus for these ideas than than Bill because and, you know, because one, yeah, yeah. Because he chose to frame it in terms of you know, don't fight the system, build a better mousetrap, we can do this, there is a way, it, you know, the resources are dependent on our ability to uh, imagine or perceive them, yeah. you know, and that's actually a much more useful message. Yeah, and that, like, sounds, yeah. like, useful, that sounds uh, Peter Thiel, because Peter Thiel always talks about this definite positive view if you want to create a better future. Yeah, except Peter Thiel is like the opponent, you know, in this, what? I mean, in the sense that like Jeff Bezos and all of these guys, you know, they're, they're, they're the bad guy. Well, they're, well, not the bad guy, but there's a sense in which there's a sense in which uh, that kind of optimism can be taken too far. I feel mm -hmm. like Buckminster Fuller was clearly and obviously still motivated by compassion mm -hmm. in this, rather than just sort of like sort of uh, dismissing or dodging the conversation about the fact that yes, yeah, superabundance is going to solve all of this mm -hmm. someday. But like, I mean, uh, to be fair, like. You know, the, the, the whole singularity university thing of like, let's help a billion people right now, you know, that's very nobly motivated, but uh, there's something about the way that techno-optimism yeah, is being discussed right, now, and right. Peter Thiel is absolutely participating in that conversation. That sounds, the superabundance thing, it sounds a lot to me, and Peter Diamandis, you know, that's, yeah, to, yeah. you know, but that, that whole thing, like, it sounds a lot to me like the kind of shit that I hear at hippie music festivals right. where so they're like yeah. they're like you just have to come from a place of abundance and I'm like oh you yeah, mean you mean a trust okay so maybe so, I'm getting this wrong so, so Teal he basically his perspective is entirely Girardian his main influence is Rene Girard which is why I started to study Girard pretty deeply okay. in the past two years so he has this model it's more based on mimetic desire and the sacrifice of the founder of the, as the scapegoat. So, so, am I completely wrong about Teal in terms of his? Um, like... Yeah, I would say he he's you know he's definitely talking to people in our crowd, but usually he's the one who's saying, "No, you're wrong. I'm right." And it, like the way he communicates is very interesting because he always kind of has the same message every single uh, interview he he goes into like it. It's actually very rare for him to share anything new in different interviews. Hmm. But he basically basically just paints this uh, picture of uh, we gotta solve mimetic conflicts type of picture, and then um, just the issue of like most of our consumption is due to the fact that we want things that we've been taught to want, and that that's that's what's killing you know that's what's causing all this trouble. Is that um, mimetic, right? That idea. Yeah, I don't know if he talks so much from that direction as much as like this. The uh, the founder needs to be like a extreme insider and extreme outsider. That's why. That's how you get someone who's crazy enough to create the better future. Mm. So he's like a good leadership 
like if you want to be in a leadership role, he's someone to look up to and figure out. Is that is that what you mean? Like, well, I would say no. He's more of a decision maker. He's someone who's able to identify valuable people before other people are. That's the that's role cool. he plays, and that's what I try to understand out of him. And you were saying that Peter Thiel, he has an idea about. But then, like the other funny thing is like. I I compared him to L. Bob Rife when I talked to uh, Neil Stevenson. Okay, so now, okay, you gotta go there with us, please. Okay, L. Bob Rife of Snow Crash, and you know Peter. T- you mean because of the seasteading thing, or um, more than just that? It's like really, he's got the seasteading, and he's like this uh, very rich person who's into like the nature of mythology. Like Peter Thiel's top recommended book was called. Um, things hidden since the foundation Gerard. of the world. Yeah, nice. it's Gerard. He, so yeah. he, he reads at yeah. that level? Yeah, so that's his so top I'm probably completely book. wrong about him, according to Ikki. So, so that's his top <laughs> recommended book. And and you see Al Bob Rife, he was also trying to find this code that's hidden since the, uh, begin, the beginning of the world. And... Yeah, what is it called? Foundation of the world, that was the Yeah, I said the foundation beginning. of the world. Whatever. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. and this it code, is. it's it's uh, John 1-1. One, one. Hey, John. <laughs> so in the beginning, there was the word, word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? So that's the code underlying the universe in Snow Crash, and that's also what Peter Thiel is trying to break when he's trying to create innovation through venture capital. I like the comparison of the, uh, the logos with with Stevenson mm-hmm. like that. The, you compared it to uh, to John. So what did Stevenson say to that? Um, so he didn't really know the reference to Theo. He's like, okay, I guess Theo's some random rich guy, cool. <laughs> huh. He has to know who Theo. That's strange. Yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, he he at least presents and seems from his work to be like one of the most well-read dudes in the world. Yeah, um, I mean, the thing is like. Have you read Thomas Pynchon? So I, I guess <laughs> yeah, I'm not too surprised. Yeah, because I'm not too surprised he's because he's like the next uh, level up from Stevenson. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Because Teal, when he wrote Zero to One, the mythological things weren't really that explicit. But if you look at his online lecture notes when he took he taught that class at Stanford, you would see like this huge section on the founder as victim and the founder as god. So I don't know hmm. how many times I've read that little article over and over again, probably like at least two dozen times. So, oh, That's oh, okay, so yeah. so bringing it back to clowns, yeah. you're saying that this is where the, this is yeah. where Trump yeah. comes in, right? Yeah. Because and the CEO, not just clowns, the CEO but like is the clown that is like sacrificed the Christ like, sort of like eaten by the yeah, company. Like anyone who's a true innovator, you're, you're at both, you're at both extremes. You, you got the, you're the extreme outsider and the extreme insider. So, so clowns are like extreme, you got the extreme scary part and also the extremely funny part. So you got the two poles that you contrast against. So that's, so the, <laughs> the extreme insider and the extreme outsider mm-hmm. is inside and outside of you at the same time. And that's the answer mm-hmm. to the question. Is it, is mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. is the entity uh, insider outside of you? Yeah. You know, which means that, that Trump is inside all this, of us. And this is why, yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm not sure that conclusion that. follows from your premise. And, and you this, just don't want it to follow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, this is, yeah. yeah, so this is exactly what I wrote about in something unpublished. Uh, 
And it also kind of reflects back to why the same Taleb believes in God, because it's a fat tail distribution right there. You have on one extreme, you have the extreme outsiders, on one extreme, you have the extreme insiders. And when you do your investment strategy, that's what you do. You, you invest in the very stable extreme insiders, but then you also invest in the very volatile extreme outsiders to try to capture all the positive uh, black swan benefits. Well, you just blew my mind because yeah. <laughs> because mm -hmm. I've my main metaphor for uh, investment mm -hmm. has been this the, came out of this paper, this research paper I read, talking about how they managed to computationally confirm the the sort of uh, the the general strategy that that people will take a dartboard approach, the monkey throwing at a dartboard, mm -hmm. and that. You know, if you everyone wants to hit the center of the dartboard, but actually the the small low cap mm -hmm. companies are the ones that grow really fast. And so, if you can find them earlier, they're the better early investments. Yeah. And but the, anyway, the point is that the so they're saying that basically randomness mm -hmm. is better investment than like trying to select for what you think are the um, best portfolios. And the point is that the the, the fucking dartboard is a harlequin. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so, shit. Yeah, and, yes, uh, right. So basically, I want to elaborate more on Taleb on this point. That uh, So he actually has, in one of the articles That's he wrote true. online, yeah. he has this thing about throwing things at the dartboard. And what he says is that people, most people want to aim for the center, right? So you want to have uh, accuracy and precision. Okay, so accuracy is like, are you close to the center or not? Well, precision is like, out of everything you throw, are they clustered close together or not? Mm -hmm. So what he says is that actually most people think if you want to not fall off the board completely, you would want to aim for the center for accuracy, right? But he says, no, that's not the case. You actually want precision. So even if you're not directly centered, like if you're a bit off centered, that's your cluster, at least you're not going off the edge. So you're not uh, risking death. Hmm. So how that's can we cool. tie that back into Legend of Zelda? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of. Well, Michael will do it. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah, it's, just, it's all a past. It's the whole landscape that we're describing is just, mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing in my mind, you know. But I mean, there are lots of clowns in Zelda, right, in one way or another. But I mean, it, there are. There was one thing that I actually was just thinking about was I had this. There's something that I was working on this writing thing that was that I was doing last year and I was talking about uh, like how the state is an alchemical lab laboratory and and for some reason we worked out Donald Trump as an alchemical homunculus for some reason we worked him out of our you know the clash of all of you know our psyches together worked out this this figure and we have to understand we have to understand why yeah we've thrown him up just like the Germans threw Hitler up right yeah. for, for them Hitler just made total sense he's gonna pull us out of the depression he's well, gonna put everyone to work makes sense you know? either, but yeah I'm just saying that for, you know I don't make all these projections but there's an unconscious reason yeah right and here's another interesting thing is that there's a lot of alchemical symbolism in Trump right he's golden yeah. Right. He's got right. these weird alchemical signifiers. Right. And it makes me think about you know the alchemists were always they were spiritual, so they always insisted that their gold was not the vulgar gold. Right. They had the term like the non-vulgi, you know. Yep. But Trump reminds me of the vulgar gold, like the exoteric alchemist yeah. that was trying to create fool's gold, or they actually thought that you could. I make like that. Yeah, so, yeah. so what about Trump, <laughs> like Trump's that. incantations, like when he calls people names, lying Ted. 
Crooked Hillary. So what are those? That's just like that, that's things? like if you had a, a a crude version of the Philosopher's Stone, it could be something that could just I don't know. That's NLP. fucked up. That would that's be NLP. NLP. Instead of NLP. 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 Yeah. NLP. Whoa, that's a good yeah, that's a good way to, to yeah, because he's, he's he knows that on Twitter he can if he starts some calling Hillary Clinton Crooked Hillary, then he's like fixing that into yeah, the and that's the meaning is the message yeah. But it's in there, so it's like he, it's he's just like waving his his dick around, really. I'm, yeah. I'm just I don't know, man. That's weird. I mean, and I realize that these some of these alchemical ideas can be deconstructed back to some weird racial ideas about like colors and like how like we take colors in a certain way. Like Trump's golden hair is like gold. Like it, did that very indo Did that have a resonance with people at some level? Right. Yeah. It's fucking weird, man. Yeah. It's like he yeah. looks like that. He looks golden like up there, <laughs> right. and right. that's you know. We worked out, but you know, like the, 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 the alchemists, it was all the gold was not really gold, though. It was all there was one alchemist that said it was invisible gold, you know. Like, there's actually an it's incredible like UFO cloud. case, right? It all was <laughs> nice track, you know, yeah. but I mean, but the, the cloud wants no, the cloud wants there to are clouds, it's there's no cash, it's Bitcoin, you're no, right. Like gold. Um, <laughs> the Orium, uh, anyway, but invisible gold, right. I forgot where I was going with this, but... And, you know, anyway. interestingly, in, in, in John C. Wright's, yeah. uh, his, his six-part thing, and, you know, he'd be an interesting... I don't know if any of you have read John C. Wright. He's, I feel like he's, he's, a, he's a principal author in this conversation. A very, a, what a, has he written? He wrote um, the, a trilogy, The Golden Ecumen, and then an, another six-book series called The uh, Account to the Eschaton, but it's or no the eschaton, the eschaton sequence. It starts with count to a trillion. Oh, that sounds cool. The last book is count to infinity. The eschaton sequence. Yeah. But it's um, the, I like words that you know, I like finding words that just feel good in my brain. You know, and that's one of them. The eschaton sequence. Like I, those words are like so. So is that why you like you like Michael's poetry? Yeah, exactly. Because he can do that. Yeah, he's a he's an attorney. <laughs> who wrote the, the most psychedelic science fiction trilogy, Golden Ecumen. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, while he was still a flaming atheist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then decided in his ultra... Ra and, like, like high-profile skeptic. Right. You know, made that a big part of his brand as a science fiction uh -huh. author. Mm -hmm. Then he said, all right, well, the rational thing to do would be to accept the fact that if God is a transcendent entity then God can disclose its identity at will or hide its identity from me at will as a lesser intelligence. So the only way I'm ever going to find out if he's like, so the theologians are right. He's like, God is revealed by revelation and not by like, you know, analysis. Yeah. And so he's like, all right, God, show yourself to me. And then like the next day or the day after he has a heart attack that puts him in the hospital. Oh wow. And while he's in the hospital, he's visited by three spirits, including the mother Mary, and it decides at the age of forty or like in his forties mm -hmm. to become a born again Catholic. When will that happen to Sam Harris? <laughs> <laughs> Sam Harris is not logical enough to ask Let's kick Sam Harris around. So Sam Harris is not rational enough to ask God if he exists. <laughs> no. To like wave his fist at the sky because that would be silly. I will, you know it's what? It's not rational. Yeah, it's not rational to do that. When I think John C. Wright figured it out. The actual rational thing to do is to say, okay, transcendent intelligence, I would like to see you now. You know, and then if it doesn't happen, then try again later. Oh no, yeah. it'll happen. <laughs> Trust me on that. 
It'll show up in some weird accident or something that you didn't see coming. <laughs> so Jan Martell and Phil Ford talk about that. I think you would love Weird Studies podcasts. Uh -huh. They yeah. they talk about that with um, doing. This is Jeff Martell. Yeah, yeah, okay. Doing magical works. And he said, he like, seems really cool. I haven't interacted yet or heard your. Oh he yeah, said, seems like a really nice guy. He said that he said that he, basically he tried magic just to see, you know, just for shits basically. Like right. he said, this story is so nuts. He said, he asked for a large sum of money in his magical ritual, and then he got like it probably a, showed up. Right? Well, he got like a refund to the like for like ten bucks or something, but the check in the memo line said the sum in like really unusually bizarrely large lettering mm -hmm. you know that took up like a huge and he kept it because it was a large sum <laughs> of money <laughs> he, was like, he was like this shit is too weird i'm out like <laughs> oh man that was great that was really good he's like you gotta be careful you gotta be careful when you're doing oh, this man, shit that's, that's the clown playing you. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 exactly that was awesome. The setup was great. The punchline was great. It was like, dude, you should be like a stand-up comedian. A comedian of ideas. You know, I remember when uh, Baudrillard died and somebody reviewed him as a comedian of ideas to try to delegitimize him. I'm like, at that point, Wait, That's actually what I want to be, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> But so now like, I kind of like the yeah, idea. Yeah, like, what if I'm like Duncan Trussell or Joe Rogan, but I just mm -hmm. interview ideas, but rather than people, and that's kind of what you do for your dead. Yeah, I so take I, comedy seriously. Yeah, your dead philosopher project, you're interviewing the ideas. <laughs> How could you not laugh at that joke? Yeah, that so you, you are the I take comedy the, seriously. Wait, are, you, are, you, are you talking about how... You're the comedian of through ideas. the medium that you've yeah. been interviewing, like Rudolf Steiner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Talk more about that, because that's oh, the, fascinating. Uh, I mean, yeah, okay. speaking, speaking of respect to the crazy old man, like, yeah. I've never... I, <laughs> I told I told Notice my, that now I am yeah, yeah, crazy. No, 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 It's okay. You're, well, you're finished. Finished. But Lalta. the thing about it is I like that. Well, now, hold on. Yeah. I'm going to finish. Yes, John, you're, you're Lalta. I love it. You're the old child. Yeah, no, I'm... What I said to my perfect. buddy... I'm down with what, what all What I said to my friend uh, is that I've never... The actual statement was, speaking of crazy... Respect to crazy old men. Um, what, I told my friend that I've never seen... Hey, I'm only 49. Wait, 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 wait. You're assuming... I said... I said, I've never seen you pay more respect to anyone than the ghost of Rudolf Steiner. That's why I, I love Steiner. Steiner. Yeah. Steiner. <laughs> I mean, the dude. So it was, it was oh, he's he's, the he was so good. Yeah. You know, it was funny because when I, when I studied Steiner, I was living in San Francisco, and I was managing a bookstore, and I was just reading Steiner, and I decided it was so good. It, you know, it took a moment to, like, figure out how to get into him. Because like Robert McDermott's uh, Essential Steiner was terrible, you know it's a, it's a bad book, and I was like, this is not working. I don't see why. Why is Thompson like this? But then I started reading the lecture cycles, and once I got into those, I became like a Steiner addict, and that was all I read literally for one entire year, Steiner, 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 Steiner for the whole year, and uh, I, I was an addict. Hey, this is but, Steiner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. One of his blackboard drawings. Yeah, I came home. On the cover of Michael Kamen's <laughs> book, Absence. Hey, wait, go on. No, that was my point. It was just... So, so you... you know, so yeah, I watched this. So you it's like a drug. He, and he is like a drug. When you're reading him, um, it's kind of like listening to like Terrence McKenna. Yeah, he's into that just, world. Yeah, yeah, he just has a talent for 
it's really like smooth and effortless. And it I'm trances like, you into well, this I can see how hyperverse, you know. Saturn might be this being, and Mars is this other being. And it's, the guy was such a master. Yeah. Yeah, he was the best. He's probably my, one of my all-time favorite. He's definitely my favorite mystic of all time. So do you... Favorite, favorite mystic. So the thing that I couldn't wrap my head around, though, was that like the way that you managed in that conversation to completely bracket everything and just take it at total face value. You know, like that you kind of put off the empirical concern, yeah. and you didn't get into like, you know, oh, so R Rudolf Steiner channeled through my my media. Who is who's your friend again? The media? Oh, Shorty Campbell. Shorty. Yeah. Campbell. Okay. Yeah. So I should tell the story that yeah, um, after my mother died, she died last year. I had been flirting with the idea for a long time of contacting a medium. I just wasn't sure who which medium to contact or anything like that. So I discovered Bob Olson's uh, website his YouTube channel, where the guy was um, a former private detective, uh, an atheist, and then his dad died. He was like, I wonder if there's like some way that I could contact him. And he did indeed, after experimenting with different mediums, he did indeed find a medium that could contact his father, and he held this conversation with him. He's like, this shit works. It's real. It's actual. Um, so then he created this website where he has uh, all the mediums on that website are all reputable because he's he oh, just checked them all and, and it's totally reputable. So I found a medium on there. So there's a directory. Of yeah, yeah, it's mediums. called uh, like something like a best psychic mediums, I think. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's generic. The guy's yeah. a private detective. Let's cut him some slack. But there's but, no. Apparently, they have some uh, like a process of accreditation. Right. So yeah. It's, well, it's Amazon reviews. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, a lot of them are tested it's, it's by Bob himself. Okay. And if he tests one of these mediums, he puts like a gold star over. So these are the ones he's tested, okay. but the other ones are ones that he's heard good things about. That you can go to these people and get results. You know, they're not charlatans. So he convinced me. I don't know. I watched enough of his videos that, that he convinced me. So then uh, after my mother died, I, I uh, my brother and I found a medium that could channel her. And it was, I was 100% convinced it was her. I, it, she knew all these things, you know, that the medium could not possibly have known. And so once we did that and it was successful, I started thinking, I wonder if it would be like possible to interview Oswald Spengler, because he's like my all-time favorite. And I was like, is there some way that we could like dial him up? So I asked uh, the medium and she was like, I can't do that shit. I was like, why? She was like, no, this first medium who channeled my mother. Um, and she was like, I can't go and get a celebrity unless I have some, at some point, some physical connection with that celebrity. Um, so she couldn't, she couldn't, didn't have that ability. So I put it out there um, that uh, I went to the website of Eliza Meadows, you know, and I went to her website and I asked her, I said, would you like me willing to like channel Joseph Campbell, have, have your son, you know, because her son committed suicide, he died, he went to the other side, he contacted her, she was also an atheist. Uh, which was why it was so difficult for him to contact her, because uh, he was appearing to the other relatives first in their dreams and stuff. Ooh, and, and one time he just shows up in the living room of her brother, and her brother calls her, and he, he's like, "You know, I, I, your son is contacting me. I think you should like consider the possibility that maybe there is an afterlife, and this, and he's trying, he's on the other side trying to get you." And then so one night she was sleeping, and then she saw him sitting at the on the edge of her bed. And he was like jumping back and forth. He's like, you can see me. <laughs> Mom, you can see me. And she was like, 
she's like, oh my God. You know, so it was this huge experience for her. Um, so then Eric has this interesting ability where he can go get any celebrity that you want. And so I went to their website and I was watching them interview what browser? Jesus Christ, Adolf Hitler, Howard Hughes. They just did a really interesting one with Stephen Hawking. That was cool. Because you know uh, that Hawking, what Hawking said in that interview? It, 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 let's assume it is Hawking. Right. You know, it's a little, it's a little crazy. This is what I mean by cracking. <laughs> that you're really yeah. good at just taking the shit at face value. Yeah. It, but I always brag it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I... So Hawking said what? He goes, um, in a past life, I was a Roman emperor. <laughs> he goes, I, yeah, I was an emperor, and I got everything I wanted. And I was really mean to people. And I told people, you know, I, he was apparently one of the cruel Roman emperors. Mm. He's like, that's why I reincarnated this time as this person who can't do any harm to anyone. He was you neural. Know? His Holy whole body neutralized, because now he's in a, the exact opposite position where the, the Roman Emperor could hurt anyone he wanted, but in this incarnation with ALS, he couldn't hurt anyone. And all, so all that was left to him was his mind. He's like, that's why I did it, because I had access to my mind in a way that probably wouldn't have been possible if I'd had a, control over my body. And uh, I just loved it. I, I thought it was a wow. great interview. I was convinced it was him. Wow, um, that's, that reminds me of Count of Monte Cristo, mm -hmm. where in, when the main character asked uh, the Abbe Freya, he said, uh, well, if I was out of this jail, maybe I couldn't have figured out all this stuff, essentially. Mm -hmm. that, that theme of confinement mm -hmm. runs throughout everything, including the myth of Merlin, yes. you know, and, and right. Arthur, this whole thing about you know, being thrown in jail, etc. Um, it's, it's missing from the Christic, like the mainstream Christic narrative because all of his teenage years are missing. Yeah. And yeah. so you don't, yeah. you don't see him go into the fucking tree. I know, what did he do during those years? He went to India. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, he, maybe, yeah, maybe. Documentation. That's like, yeah, I mean, at least I don't know that for, I don't know that well enough to shout it like I just did, mm -hmm. frankly. But like, it's cool to think of though. But like, it is, I mean, all signs point to yes, if there was any kind of historical figure at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. then yeah, there, there, do, there does seem to be enough cultural interchange right. between those two regions that the story itself mm -hmm. traveled back and forth yep. enough yep. that mm -hmm. it became a part of the story at the very minimum. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, like, okay, so this is this is uh, the probably the most like personal thing I've ever said on this show, and it's just been like so like this is the conversation for it, because um, I, I love you, listeners, and. I don't know, a lot of you I don't know, but uh, at this point, if you're listening this far, then you really care. So here we go. Um, 11 years ago, uh, or so, 12 years ago, I had a series of mushroom trips outside Lawrence, Kansas at Clinton Lake, where my friends and I would go hiking in the woods and like go down to the water and like hang out by the water, and hang, you know, and I'd, I'd been doing that for four years at that point, you know, a couple times a year. And... Then, you know, like the spring, you're like, yeah, you do a spring trip and a fall trip or whatever. Enough to have seen some really weird shit and have been able to, like, what I call stay on my perch. Like, to be able to remain rational in the face of utter hallucinogenic nonsense. So Robert Hansen Wilson could do. Yeah. He was a cowboy too. That, that this, <laughs> that, you, that, like, like, I remember one time in particular that uh, my friends and I, and I uh, a couple years before, had gotten ourselves into this spot that was like all spiky trees, like acacia trees, 
and spider webs. And we were tripping so hard that all we could see were like hexagons everywhere. My friends and I were like, how do we get out of this little like glen here? And I was like, wait a minute, uh, follow the hexagons because the angle of the thorn to the branch and all of the, the spider web stuff is octagonal. Like that's the, yeah. I was right. like, it's yeah. a 45 instead of a 60 degree angle. You just gotta follow the 60 so degree angle. So that Adney's thread yeah. for you to get out of it. So, so yeah, so we followed the hexagons and got out. So like, I'm not a total dipshit. Like, okay, when I tell this story, and I tell that story in order to tell this next story, which is about how in I, I was like fairly fucking scientific. And yet by that point, and in this place that I was very familiar with and comfortable with. And right, because you're, you came out of paleontology, right? Yeah. Your background was in hardcore science. Well, I mean, you know... Dealing with yeah. concrete... Although I think, although to be fair, I don't think lab and experimental science was ever, like, my strength. And I think, you know, a lot of this was more about the mystical experience of, like, uh, uh, looking, you know, prospecting for fossils out in the, the Badlands, you know, right. like that. What it does to, to really be inhabiting a landscape of that age and to be, like, immersed in that kind of a sense of depth. And then to have to be like to revelation to find things, which again going back to Bakker is I think the point is that he's like a, de a desert revelatory mystic, yep. you know that like he never I really like made that. sense. He I never like really that. made sense <laughs> in the institution, yeah. you know. And he's over his life he's bounced around from school to school and museum to museum, and you know for a while didn't even have a museum of his own. He just had a society. That's like when yeah. I was working with him. Huh. Um, so but, he wasn't a, uh, a celebrity at that point. No, he was. Oh, he, he already he was, was, but he just wasn't affiliated anymore okay. with the uh, University of Colorado. Gotcha. Um, but at any rate, the the point was that in 2007, I had four mushroom trips. The four I had that year, that um, I saw this shit. Just you know, you, this whole time, this conversation, there's been this paused YouTube video of Terrence McKenna, yeah. the definitive UFO tape, <laughs> which, which shows both saucers and cigar-shaped cigar UFOs and a, uh, a number of cross, like, flying, glowing crucifixes. Uh, this is my contribution. Uh, yeah, yeah, Michael was entertaining us. I was us. trying to do tarot, tarot reading. We're having a great time. He was like, check out this McKenna video. Hilariously, the uh, YouTube search bar says, Deus ex McKenna. Actually, it says dues, but anyway. I thought you were going to read like one of my porn files. First. I was like, oh shit, now I've got to cover this up. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, you're out of control. at Agur. We're mixing it all together. But it's narrative collapse. The um, the point is the the you can tell I watch com I watch comedy you know cinematic <laughs> overlook yeah no, go ahead. this year I saw four uh, basically like UFO sightings but I would wait are you serious yeah I couldn't sure. call them UFOs yeah, you can't just so. drop them <laughs> well, that, casually that's, that's typically how I you gotta prepare us for that no no no, no. you saw okay four keep UFO let them finish the story all four I want to see a UFO all I've never all seen four of these these trips took place over the year. 2006 to 2007. Right. They all happened at the water, uh, like at the lake uh -huh. in Lawrence, Kansas, yeah. uh, at Clinton Lake, which I, I later, I found out after the first one actually does have some kind of rumors of UFO activity, although it's not well documented. And some other people had seen some stuff out there in the years prior. Right. And that, But these things were not like what I, they're not what I, what I had ordinarily heard of described as UFOs. They were uh, like clear, luminous objects, like they're, they're transparent, 
disturbances in space with like certain colored lights at certain parts of them. And so they look more than anything like like the predator crossed with like a bioluminescent fish right, flying right. around in the sky. Right. Okay. Well, I love that. Bioluminescent. So there's an early fish. ufologist that thought UFOs were organic beings that we don't understand them. Yeah. And they are kind of bioluminescent, aren't they? That is what yeah. they are. And so some of them, some of them, like the first, the first night I had just started watching. The night before, I had just seen the two-hour press conference uh, video of the disclosure, con the disclosure project, which is uh, you know John. Uh, Stephen Greer's yeah. whole thing, where he's trying—he's got this like armada of former military scientists and I was just talking about the disclosure project. Yeah, nuclear technicians and all these these folks who uh, you know had top secret clearance, and we sort of tacitly trust on a day-to-day -day basis with our lives, coming forward and saying I was directly involved in the cover-up. We actually live in a huge ecosystem of intelligences. You know, we have all these different relationships to them. And then the next day, my friends and I went tripping at the lake, and suddenly, this fucking thing, you know, and it's like, I was primed to see it. I fully, completely accepted I was primed to see it. Why, well, had you, because you, of, because you weren't of the, sober? No, I was, was, I was on mushrooms, but the point oh, was... I'm that, sorry, like, you were primed to see it, I mean, that's good. I was primed to see it that's in the, the trip. experience. Right. You know, I was yeah, primed yeah. to see it by having watched the disclosure right. conference right. Okay. the night before. But that doesn't mean it wasn't real, too, in right. some way. Also, yeah. you know what I mean? And in yeah. fact, it happened right after I said... Because um, I was sitting with my girlfriend down at the water, and there was this. My, we were there on a double date with my friend and his girlfriend, and he was an aerospace engineering student and, who had built all of his own reproduct, reproductions of Jimi Hendrix's pedals. Like he was this brilliant electrical engineer. Dude, did he make that? Oh, I probably just incriminated you. That in purple tripping pedal. Eleven years but, ago. But he sold them at like that. There was that one Jimi Hendrix wah pedal. That you but, get. but not that. Not oh, that. Okay. But like he made. I his thought own. all computer geeks were into psychedelics. But at any rate, the at any rate the um, the point was we were sitting there down there by the water at the at the bottom at the of this I mean on this jetty that had this. Uh, and we were like opposite the dam on this reservoir, and there was like a plug in this jetty uh, that went, you could tell it like led to like a sewer system or something that was under the water, because you could hear things down there even though right. the water level was here. And I, at one time, I, another night, a different year, uh, I had heard something even walking around down there, and it creeped the shit wow. out of us. Uh, so <laughs> we, this, this place we knew was kind of weird. We gotta go off here, and there was a building there in this field is a meadow at the end of a like a service uh, access road, yeah. and there's a there's a building there that uh, had like a power cable coming out of the building, but then ending where just like without going anywhere. And my buddy, who's this engineer, was like, "That makes no sense at all." And then so he and I both came up with this thing that it, the lake was actually being used to dampen some sort of electric. We were just bullshitting ourselves, you know. We were like, "Oh, it's being used to like." You guys were tripping at the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. We're like, "Oh, the lake must be used to uh, to like mediate some sort of uh, wireless transfer of electricity into orbit to be picked up by one of these experimental beam powered." <laughs> Propulsionless VTOL plasma beings. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, and then and then like and then right as I was like, yeah. In fact, if you trace from the lake to this plug and then up the hill the road to this building and then to the the power cord that goes nowhere, then there should be a spaceship right there. And then like <laughs> you deduced it. One minute later, we're walking up the hill and exactly where I had pointed, this thing flies over the ridge. Oh man. And. That's called evocation. I know, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I ran after it. I, actually, I do tell this. I told 
a part of this story when I was on Eric Davis' show. Oh. Um, the two, I have a 2011 episode Technosis. of Expanding Minds. Yeah. Right. I talk Eric about Davis. how I when, this, when this UFO appeared to me the first time, I thought it was out there in a simple way, and I ran after it to try and get a better look. And it flew behind a tree, but then I could see it in front of the tree, like it wasn't behind the tree. He's goosebumps, dude. And I knew that it was in that that I was it, you but that I was them. but that I was I was missing the point. That I was like being like sort of tested. That's what McKenna and Valet would say. That they're testing your conscious. They're like, they're like Zen koans. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. And it, yeah, and it was basically koans. it was basically can, koan. it was like, yeah. can you figure this That's out? Cool. Yeah, I'm gonna steal that visual koans. <laughs> so, so UFOs are visual koans. Yeah, UFO experience is so great. Koan. Koan. Yeah. So, just so what for what this is worth, Sufjan <laughs> Stevens knows this while we're talking about UFOs and crosses. Sweet, that's Sufjan <laughs> Stevens knows this because he has the song uh, about the the uh, concerning the UFO sighting outside of blah 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 Illinois. It's, it's yeah. part of his yeah. his Chicago the album of Chicago like Illinois. Uh, and it's that was a whole bunch of clouds. That that song, which by the way has Chicago. no co- has no like consistent meter underneath it, and uh, Chicago. Flows. No, uh, the song concerning the UFO sighting. Oh, I'm sure. Okay. It has it has it's like on some weird eleven thirteen beat or something. Gotcha. So you never get settled into the beat. Right. And it's he says you know came the revenant, and he mm. recognizes the UFO as as a revenant. In this song, and it's like it's just basically he basically says like the UFO is like this Christic appearance, you know, like a yeah. descent into you know it's an involution. Well, it's, it's, they're mythology machines. That's it's like the deepest are. song I've ever heard for the record. Mythology <laughs> machines. Well, what, whatever the yeah. UFO phenomenon occurs, it creates new myths. It creates new gods. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what it does. It's some mm-hmm. sort of machine that you know interjects uh, that component into, into into a civilization. I mean, that's happening now. Yeah. Okay, so why, that's, why that's is part this, one. Why is this happening? <laughs> I mean, dude, he's got his narrative. I showed them. Yeah. Tucker Carlson is like this Fox News guy. You know, you know Fox News. Like, who doesn't know Fox News, right? <laughs> I showed them. Never heard last of night, June eighth. Mm-hmm. He just did a thing, like, and he interviewed Nick Pope from the UK Ministry of Defense. And he, this is the first, one of the first times that a reporter in, in this age has taken the UFO subject seriously because they they've been. There's been a policy of denial and ridicule about the UFO phenomena since the 1950s. And so we just watched this thing that ha- that aired last night uh, with Tucker Carlson interviewing, uh, it was Nick Pope, uh, yeah. the yeah, UK Ministry of Defense, talking about this UFO video they had, and they, this is a real phenomenon, these are objects, we don't know who's making them, they're, they're technological crap that's beyond the capabilities that we have and that any other you know country has. And, and, it's, and Tucker Carlson was like, well, what do you mean by that? Or how does that possible? Are they aliens? Like what? And he's like, well, you know, the governments don't want to speculate that far, but there's definitely objects that human beings aren't making that are flying around in our skies. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to cut to a commercial break now. I hope we have you on again. It's like, <laughs> great. And now for something that's like completely the most different. monumental idea of all time. But it's like yeah. just, it's, it's the end of an it's an end of a new show. I mean. But that's the whole thing about like that's the whole thing about the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, I thought it, it was interesting. It can never be in the center of any kind of discourse. It it, it disintegrates centers because it's meant to be the imaginary of a, of a, of a people. Like right. it's meant to be in the periphery. And as soon as you get it in the center, but it will. Whatever our next it's mythology mercurious. is, is, is going to involve extraterrestrials. This is what Jung and the alchemists. I mean, that's going to be part Mercurius. Of... 
the global planetary mythos that will eventually well, emerge. It's happening now. So we're watching it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also it's also typical. It's the rule rather than the exception in human history. Yeah. Like you yeah. know the the yeah. Lakotas star nations. Yeah. You know that that shit is. Uh, fairly par for the course among human beings. Right. And I but think not the Western culture, culture though. No, Western culture, but, we but. have to have these beings into one form that can convince us that there's more beyond this. Those right. were, they have beings all over the place. Right. They accept them. But, it was, for us, it's, but it, it, one of the best things that come out of the first podcast recording I did with you, John, was when you were talking about what comes next. And you were talking... Oh, yeah. You were talking about the the reemergence of a polar, like a circumpolar shamanic civilization. Yeah. And I think that that's that's really key because. What does circumpolar mean? Well, like that, you know, like it used to be the, you know, like Siberian shamanism, and like northern Canadian, and that there were right. these, you know, that these these animals, the wolf, the reindeer, right, the, right, right. the grizzly, these are things that live all the all the way around. Oh. You know, and. And now it's outer space. Well, no, now it's it, now the the we've the ice age ended, the land bridge receded. It's underwater. All the temp, the old temples, yep. you know, pre uh, comet impact, circa thirteen thousand years ago, offshore on the continental shelves are so you underwater. In the, you believe in the comet impact? I do. I totally do. That was that was I will, the dinosaurs, you mean? No, 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 no. no, no. That's that's a whole separate thing. You're talking um, about later on. I'm talking about there's there's the uh, you know. Um, Graham Hancock, Randall What does Carlson. Michael Garfield think of Graham Hancock? I, you know, he's a journalist, and he's a firebrand. <laughs> okay, about those ideas, though, about these earlier civilizations, well, so, and yeah, Sphinx so, being really old. Because so, John Eber doesn't think the Sphinx is, uh, he doesn't I agree with that no, research. No, no, no. Well, I mean, whatever the case may be, we have all of these offshore temples that are under, like, 200, 300-foot column water. Okay? And I'm not, you know, like much like Graham Hancock claims to be, I'm actually not an expert in this shit. Mm. So, um, you know, I, I, I cover it as best I can. But you can still form an opinion. Yeah, and my opinion, my opinion is that we had a, a global um, seafaring civilization. Most of it was wiped out by the, like, a rapid glacial melt. Mm. I think his, his hypothesis that we... Uh, had like survivors that went around rebooting civilization, uh, uh, right. too, mm -hmm. but not to not to this not as so Steiner much. Steiner talks well, not so much to the survivors. Uh, and uh, not this not so much to the people that like lived in the cities and moved in, but interestingly, to this the people that had remained hunters and gatherers and were living further inland. Yeah, and were like being. That this is the thing is that that we think agriculture like evolved at this specific time, and we have this history of like human like really healthy human beings suddenly taking a hit and like the life expectancy and the nutritional density that we observe in the skeletons and everything it looks like agriculture really sucked for human beings for thousands of years mm. and i think it's because that's not us originally discovering agriculture in any kind of natural way that's indigenous agriculture which is basically like working in wild spaces it's like wild crafting right. you know the aboriginals and like of Australia, you know, they actually cultivated that land for for you know thirty thousand years or What's more. What's the word? Wild crafting. Wild crafting, where you're not you're not irrigating, um, but you might be like creating berms and things so as to create like natural irrigation. What about love crafting? <laughs> yes. okay, sorry. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's, that's where you're only mentally aware of the hyper object, but you're not actually able to instantiate it through your like comprehension of whole systems. But you were on something though before. Um, 
before and before this whole interlude. And yeah. So at any rate, I think you know my my your my, my uninformed opinion. Wait, is did that, you finish the cycle? No, I absolutely no. Right. I got part one of four. Oh. Okay, <laughs> that was only the first. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, but but like I don't want to I don't want to jump too too far. The, the, we can do this gracefully. So yeah, my my you know uneducated opinion is that I don't think that we need. Uh, aliens at any point in human history in order to explain anything. Yeah, but, I agree. I mean, but I, agree. I do yeah. think that there have been encounters between human beings and extraterrestrials. Through hyperspace. And, and that we, they, some of them have been made record. That's where the artifacts idea is that these shamanistic states, those hallucinations are actually beings. That yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, you can say you can't explain human history without aliens, but in another sense, what I'm saying is it's not like apes were going nowhere and then they were like bred with pigs and genetically modified by some like, you know, oh, like, Samaritan, I mean, that's all just like yeah. uh, bollocks, mm. straight fucking nonsense. Stitchens, uh, yeah. And, and I, yeah, the, 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 you know, William Thompson's uh, direct attack on, on I read Sitchin. a few of his books. The funny thing about Sitchin was that, uh, he was actually really erudite. Uh, uh, he was translating all these Sumerian texts himself. Mm -hmm. So he taught himself the language. And there's not many people who can do that. That would have been a good question for Stevenson. Yeah. Does oh, he no. like Stitchin? What does he think of Stitchin? Fine. And he's really erudite. When you Aren't read you him, him, you, know, you can't take Ask it seriously. Like you're saying that civilization was founded by extraterrestrials. I mean, no, you, you can't. And then he's seen spaceships and some of the works of art, you know. But at the same time, but on the other hand, at the same time, a lot of cool same time, details. The fucking image absolutely can enter our consciousness without the thing appearing. And I do yeah. think, yeah. I do oh, think, fuck that, yeah, dude, yeah, yeah, I, I do think that, that we can be yeah, drawn right. forward through history by the like this mm -hmm. hanging carrot. That's why I use the tarot, because these images are cross sections from all kinds of different times and places. All I mean, it's like the Hyperion contest, you know, Dan Simmons' thing about this. There's like temples that travel backwards in time, and there's this whole thing of that's you know, the, 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 that's the Mobius the, strip, that's you know, the, the thing creating itself. Well, like there's there's the book. Well, we're going there. Why not? <laughs> I mean, we're, we're there, and we're almost. Is there. there anywhere we're not going we, in we this conversation? We're gonna have to do a we're video, covering the entire fucking Michael Garfield's tarot existence. We're gonna film that. We're gonna do Michael Garfield's tarot. John Ebert is going to explain. You get four really smart people in a room. Right. I mean, what's gonna happen? Hugh is gonna relate the tarot to finance. We're like creating an intellectual black hole. Talking about the tarot, which is in terms of the a singularity event. So, we're we're actually. I think you know we are clearly within a singularity because because this does lead gr real gracefully into the into the act two, which is that um, if we're talking about there being a you know like again Timothy Morton does talks about there being no present and he's taking a really weird radical uh, perspective I think just to be contrarian um, but he he's you know he says it's only past and future because it's only the influence of these hyper objects and the, you know our consciousness is just the nexus of these inner objective causal relationships, like and therefore, at the end of time. right, and therefore we're not really like, yeah, we're just a handshake, which is actually what I saw in my first DMT trip was that mm -hmm. the president was was selected from an in, like a sexual relationship between one possible past and one so, possible future. So, so we're sexual, 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 sexual. Okay. Well, yeah. in a sense that like there that's, were many possible well, yeah, pasts right. and many possible futures, but that they yeah, were like so, they were <coughs> that, that's and, like, what, yeah, the other, uh, Well, that, that's yeah, a transaction when you transfer from the data from one party to the other. When when you take these different possible universes as maybe nodes 
in like some sort of economic system. Therefore, I am Bitcoin. Yeah. You know. Yeah, in that sense. But so, but so there's this. Hmm. While we're in that theme. So you have a lot of investors in Bitcoin. There's a what's my advice? A lot of investments in Bitcoin. No, but I like I, I have invested a lot of conversation <laughs> in Bitcoin. You know, because I think it's fascinating. And and so this um, this thing about uh, everything creating everything else. You know, if you want to view it sort of as the photograph of negative of, you know, there being nothing except the intersection of, you know, forces, that there is uh, this book called Who Built the Moon? Oh, I love that book, man. I got that from my brother for his birthday. So you've read it. And his, bro his birthday is actually today. And I got that as a gift for him. No kidding. It's kind of words and crazy. Maybe not. Maybe that's not a synchronicity thing. I'm just looking for meaning here. But, okay. No, you bought, yeah. you, you bought that? Who Built the Moon for my brother, yeah. Because yeah. he likes that kind of stuff, you know. And that's like we're that's like, yeah today, today is interesting yeah. yeah and he just had a really uh, uh intense surgery he, he had cancer in his knee a tumor well actually it wasn't cancer it was a tumor in knee anyway it doesn't matter so he's a great guy so what you read that book yeah i mean uh, yeah I, I guess i did yeah i did read it. so they you can attest to the fact that they have all of this sort of the moon is very mysterious it looks like it was built i mean there's lots of aesthetic qualities to the moon that shouldn't exist if it was just captured by the gravitational field of the earth. It looks like it was manufactured and there's a variety of reasons that the moon would be manufactured to make life possible on the earth. So it's tricky, man. So I don't know, maybe that's what this news is about Mars. There's life on, on Mars and maybe we're going to discover that. Now I'm going way too far. Okay, interrupt well, me. So, so they, they, do, they give all this weird, compelling, uncanny Shit. It's all about numbers and ratios. You know, as you said earlier, like you said, you said you, I don't know if that was a Freudian slip or not, but at the very beginning of this conversation, you were talking about the signal to noise ratio, and you said signal to noise Rachel. I and did. I was like, I was like thinking <laughs> about Blade Runner. I caught it too, and I was like, what is signal Rachel? Rachel. Because we were talking about narrative collapse and Rachel lines. How is it? What does she have in common that my unconscious? Yeah, I gotta that. put that in. Well, it's because her eyes were green. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna, she I'm gonna dig eyes. into it and find yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah. So, so um, okay. at any rate, this this notion that the moon seems perfectly placed in order to facilitate it, the emergence of life and consciousness on this planet, and yes, right. also, it's bizarrely perfectly. Proportioned relative to Earth, such that it's uncanny, dude. Such yeah. that the and this is like if you're into Westworld and you're like, wow, how, like if you saw like how uh, Robert Ford in that show sets up this elaborate mousetrap kind of a thing, and it's just you know he's really playing every single character, human or and host alike, and it's just this a grand operatic flourish. Then you get like a million times more out of this whole shit when you when you consider that the moon generated the tidal forces that led to the mixing of elements in intertidal pools that led intertidal yeah, hot pools exactly that led right. to earth to yeah. life and that it led to the tidal forces that led to organisms developing limbs with feet so that they could cling to rocks and tidal zones and emerge from the water and get on the land yep. and all of these moments these these sort of important moments in the history of life are regulated you know by the moon and its relative distance to the Earth at any given time, and it was closer back in the day, which I personally wonder whether that has to do with the fact that, you know, that other uh, creatures, that creatures could have been so large. You know, like we talk about there being a, a like more... Or carboniferous. That's like very more strange oxygen yeah, in the yeah, atmosphere. Happy, happy carboniferous. Yeah. But the, the records the, don't the scorpions actually... were like the size of dogs, and the, 
the dragonflies are like yeah i mean if you look at the tarot card the moon i love the carbon it's it's a big moon and a a lobster coming out of the sea i love it it's It's wild it's like evolution was just having a ball it's like how big can we make this dragonfly yeah (laughs) so that's how they invented pokemon (laughs) so (laughs) dude a lot of pokemon are actually like cambrian explosion like what wtf mate so and this is good because we're getting we're, we're dovetailing real neatly into part two here because the whole point was that they were basically saying that all of this conveniently wonderful Goldilocks history and then we end up at a part where the yeah it's my it dog. looks like Silver Surfer though doesn't it the Magus this Magus card looks Prolister. like the Marvel character yes. Silver Surfer yeah Hermes I thought about that oh well, and it is Hermes but yeah. this is before Silver Surfer existed but, yeah Silver Surfer is totally written by a it is totally Oh, an adept of Crowley? Uh, of magic? magic of some kind, yeah, I forget. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I think I've heard Alan Moore talk about that. I think the Silver Surfer was oh, my yeah, favorite right. comic book character yeah. of I mean, all time. We're talking again about the Chrome Praying Mantis back in the day. Right, yeah. Silver Surfer. He was the best. I just thought he was the coolest. Crowley yeah. has like several Surfer. Magus, the only Turo deck that has like three magic, Magus, Magus cards or magic cards. Anyway. But so, um, the, the thing with the moon is that it ends up such that it is precisely one four hundredth the diameter of and one four hundredth the distance of the sun at exactly this moment in its decaying orbit such that human beings on the surface of the planet, if present at all, would be like there to witness that perfect mm-hmm. eclipse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That at no point in the history of the planet has there ever been a total solar eclipse until the evolution of human consciousness. Right. And then it's gonna it's going to separate just like it does in the background of Peter Gabriel's Don't Give Up music video. Yeah. Not the, you know, not to get sloppy with this, but I just rewatched that and noticed that they, there's this great thing where he and Kate Bush are turning, and as they turn, and then they get to the bridge, the most like potent emotional part of the song, the sun and the moon behind them that have been slowly approaching reach eclipse, and then the song like keeps going, but the eclipse separates. Put that on. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh... Ooh, yeah, the moon. Well, what's interesting, it's a very idiosyncratic. That looks nothing like the weight deck moon card. No, well, it but it still has a bug coming up from below. And there's a sword Egypt. Oh, there is a bug coming from below. Capri yeah. is. And the gatekeepers on it's, either it's side. Capri coming up out of the underworld. And that's in the weight deck the Egyptian Yeah, well, it's, the, it's a cliff and then a dog on either side. A dog and a wolf. And that's all in this card, too? Well, I mean. Well, Anubis, right? Anubis, Anubis is yep. in there, yeah. Oh, shit. Okay, so this is. Could also of, be Wepawet, though. I love how he inverts the, the traditional Wepawet is a uh, one of the guides to the underworld, and it's a, it's got a dog. And that's what that oh, looks okay. like. And that's actually look at that. It looks like a yoni right there, right? Or, <clears throat> mm-hmm. yep. So, so their whole thing with the moon was who built it? Because this right. shit is bizarre. It's precisely uh, twenty-seven point nine three two percent the size of Earth, mm-hmm. like the diameter, mm-hmm. and also it or orbits Earth in twenty-seven point nine three two days. Right. Like, right. excuse me, what? Like that doesn't that right. shit doesn't happen. I know. Nowhere else do we see anywhere in the cosmos in all of our like extraordinary telescopic power do we do we see anything even remotely like this? Yeah. So yep. what the hell is going on? And what does it have to do with the fact that our planet is the only planet that has life, which is also a thing that we don't seem to be observing anywhere else. Right. Right. And basically their whole thing was we come up with three options and we don't like any of them. They're like, it could be God. We don't like that. 
It could be aliens. We don't like that because that just pushes the question back. I like further. both of those, though. <laughs> and, he's like, and, he, and he's like, and it could be, it like, could be future human beings like through some sort of quantum shenanigans yeah. where they have to create a history in which they exist. Yeah. And I was like, I feel like you guys are so close. No. You're so close because I and I was talking about this with my buddies. We had hiked down from Taos. We'd hiked down the canyon to Stagecoach Springs down yeah. the Rio Grande. Yep. One beautiful night in uh, right. August 2014. And there was a, um, it was the, the, the Leonid meteor shower. It was the, the one in August. Uh, yeah. And sounds right. It might've been torrid. And I, I, anyway, anyway it, it was a massive meteor shower. And that night I was talking about this and I said, I think that it's really all and none of those. I think that what it really is, is that as in Greg Egan's, science fiction novel Distress, when they figure out the theory of everything and it like loops back in time, the perfect description and understanding creates the universe yeah. in which it exists. It's like that the... Yeah, it's like a Mobius strip. Uh, yes, that a perfect mm -hmm. observation creates a perfectly recursive history in which it must, the observation is explained. Yeah. You know, and that basically what, what has happened is that every single person who has ever looked up and seen a solar eclipse you know, has looked up and seen the moon, is basically voting in quantum hyperspace for that to timeline exist. to exist, and oh, has no, like, and yeah, that, I love that. Yeah. yeah, that we've basically created this history that we're like this channel yeah. of history that we're moving through by our like They're retro voting. awareness of it. So that's voting that's kind of like cryptocurrencies, right? You have the blockchain, the show on the blockchain to see if you see see the moon or not. He, he yes, and, and there's a Gnostic component to this because Dan Larimer of oh. EOS uh, and BitShares and Billy Buterin of Ethereum yeah. were having this debate on Medium about the limits of crypto-economic governance and Vitalik is saying, we can design a system in which we can in incentivize it such that all actors are, uh, that you're, you're going to guarantee good behavior. And Dan Larimer said, no, you can't because there's always another ecosystem behind it. There's always a bigger economy that creates a deep state no matter what you do. And that you basically can only get, you know, you can only sort of hope that your players will act in favor of like doing the right thing like two out of three times and you can sort of guarantee it's gonna work most of the time. But he's like, but ultimately there's always a sort of Gnostic demiurgic sort of mm -hmm thing hanging out behind it, you know, yeah, but you can't get, right. you can't factor it out, no. you know, and so I think that thing is the, uh, the sort of like monstrous face of the omega point that we create observes itself and creates the history in which we're observing our own history, this weird, uncanny, perfect history that we can't comprehend, you know, that we're looking, I mean, that it's basically that it's all, it's, it's all happening. You know, and then it, we're just sort of at different points of it, you know, right. and yeah. and it's and it's coherent. It has like an internal integrity, you know, that it does actually have. There's like a, a, a supra narrative yeah. going on here. Um, and so at any rate, the second time I went out there, this is all stuff I came up with years later after the second time I went out in 2006 it was two weeks after that first time. The first time was a new moon and the second time was a full moon. Right. And the second time, my friends, two, two guys that had not been there with me the, the first time, and I'd known for years, and you know, it's like take a bullet for you kind of friendships. Mm -hmm. I had told them, I was like, the last time I went out there, I saw a UFO. And actually, it wasn't the only one we saw. It was just at that point, later that night, when a UFO also, the first time, 
Later that night, a UFO appeared, and all four of us saw it again. But everyone was so unsure of what they were seeing. Everyone was tripping so hard that it was mm-hmm. like, both of the women came home from that were like, I'm not saying shit about shit. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not putting my finger, I'm not putting my chip down on any mm-hmm. part of that roulette table. That's very common with UFO experiences. Yeah. Some people have a traumatic response and they, yeah. they want to just deny it afterwards. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's risk. How you want to approach the risk. I think that's a lot of how we, that's basically our experience in life. It's how do you want to choose to, to be exposed to unknown risks. So I went out with these two other guys that I, I, you know, on some level I felt like were maybe like prepared to see UFOs. And, um, well, you were tripping. <laughs> well, it's like, I mean, come on, you know, if you're going to go in there. Um, so, and, you know, but I was like, but here's the thing is that I can't, like, we can't assume anything about what the, each other are seeing. Mm-hmm. When so, did we do the Freeform Psilocybin podcast? We'll get you guys in... in uh, we just, well, but Freeform, <laughs> we walk around in a place, oh. <laughs> broadcast live. All, yeah, we all right. All Wouldn't that be wild? Here's yeah. four guys tripping, and this is what Dude, I wish you could me, 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 you, you're, 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 you're getting into some potentially okay. dangerous feedback loops oh, by yeah. live-streaming okay. it. Are we live? <laughs> no, but like that in, in that idea. No, we're not live. Four cams and mics on four four tripping people that you can stitch back together in a studio and like yeah. give people excerpts is one thing. Yeah, well, but then once, different. Let, let once, you have, once you have a live you audience, then, you know, it's, it's you're you're inviting the uncanny and okay. the weird shit in, and I'm very particular. Oh, I like way. that though. You know. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. The feedback from, worn, from everybody. As somebody who has worn HC, a, uh, a camera in a room everybody. full of tripping people, here come, or here comes electronics. Yeah. Then, uh, me and John are really into this idea. James Joyce had you know, the main character Finnegan's Wake was HCE, which one of the acronyms that that could be is "Here comes every everyone." Oh yeah, yeah. And so me and John have this idea that with electronic, electronic and telematic civilization you, here comes everyone you know everyone has a comment on wow. a post and yeah, so we're all right. dealing with hce all the time. Joyce was already living in the yeah. future when he wrote oh, that I mean, crazy. Yeah. so we're always dealing with this hce character which is everyone at the same time you know but also not because her eyes were green you know I love and that. like yeah. anything that the machine that the singularity like in right. in, in um uh, accelerando like when human beings have sort of escaped from the matryoshka brain uh, that's eaten the inner planets of the solar system, and they're living as refugees in the outer planets. Spoiled. Right. The singularity is shooting out historical and fictional characters as living humans. That's right. like um, to Jeff them, Jeff, and they're like, "What yeah. the fuck is this?" Like, they're like, "Are these? Are we being treated as an infection?" And these people are are like antibodies in a system that's like we can't understand. You know, it's like there's no other. I want to put an endorsement uh, to Jeff. Jeff Noon, the author of Vert and Pollen, and I think that um, Michael Garfield and you should get together and have a conversation. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he wrote a book called Pollen, which is all about yeah. like um, people taking these like psychedelic compounds that tune them into like the um, like the agrarian body. You know what I mean? And all the like Greek myths are like these iconotypes in that space. It's really mm. interesting. Yeah. You can find them on, uh, on like uh, Twitter and stuff. Anyway, I'm entirely happy to let parts two, three, and four of this be the subject parts, yeah. of another conversation. Yeah. Well, because, but yeah. but I will say that I I think that the the takeaway here is that with each deepening stage of my personal 
history of encounters with the UFO. And I think it, it would be, it would actually be cruel not to give people part two, mm -hmm. which is that Let's give them part two. At, each, at each stage, there is an increasing intimacy and a depth of understanding that we're not dealing with the other here. Well, yeah. that's like Lutley Strieber's whole thing with UFO communion, you know, mm -hmm. that like, these were like beings that we have to commune with, and he had this whole idea of like a sensual, even sexual relationship with these beings. It was, it was strange, wow. but, but any Christian would say that's, that's, Satan, that's all old-fashioned Satanism right there, you know. Right, because you're only allowed to have one kind of communion. Sleeping with the devil, you know, the, you know, the rituals out, and the, the witches, like that, they would say that Strieber was a witch, basically, you know, that's... You know, well, right, because, because they're Confucian about it, and they're saying you don't... Or it's confused. Like, it's, well, they are, because <laughs> it's, you're, you're just taking the communion away for you, participating in the ritual, but it's, it's not, it's, it's... It, not a completely empty ritual, it's still capable of quite a bit, but it, it's based on something else. But at any rate, the, the whole second thing about this was that I insisted on not leading the witnesses. So when lights started showing up in the sky that night, my friends and I were like, do you see that? Okay, yes, what do you see? You know? And we were actually enacting this protocol, the uh, Close Encounter uh, the 5, the Stephen Greer oh, talks about, yeah. where you actually sort of declare yourselves as a group to be a uh, planet planet ambassador, mm -hmm. you oh, know, wow, and, that's, and, that's number five. Okay. and invite right. in like a diplomatic interaction. So and so we did uh, that. J. Allen Hynek came up with the uh, close encounter grades, right? So number yeah, I don't remember. Four would be like abduction. Four, right? four no, let's see. Yeah, the fourth kind is, I guess, abduction. The third kind would be contact with aliens, right? Close encounters with the first, first is kind. you see, second is, yeah. I guess, communication, communication yeah. of some kind. Damn it, I'm gonna close. Have to look this no, up. close encounters with the third kind was actual contact with the, the occupants of the UFOs. Yeah, was, close encounters with the fourth kind would be the abduction thing, and then close encounters with the fifth kind would be kind of what you're talking about, which I think that's correct. You set yourself up as an ambassador, right? I mean, I'm, I haven't heard that before, but that sounds really yeah. Well, that's yeah. that was something specifically that yeah. I think was developed by right. the disclosure I mean, project. Because you kind of have to assume that if you're dealing with a transcendental intelligence, again, to go back to John C. Wright's sort of premise, you have to assume that, you know, that they're capable of being sort of invoked. I think you so, know? yeah. I mean, I've seen that happen a lot of times, right? And that's even what Jacques Vallée thought. Jacques Vallée was trying to connect UFOs to hermeticism. So, and yeah, so in a way, it's like you're the prophet. You, you say, okay, I'm the prophet, now give me the message. Well, you know, uh, Jason Reza Drojani has a whole chapter in his book on uh, Prometheus and Atlas all about the UFO phenomena and he thought that like that it was UFO phenomena that creates the Old Testament. Oh shit, yeah. there are actually there are actually uh, six types in his um, it, dude, you should do that would be a whole other podcast, a UFO podcast. Yeah, and first so there's actually three non-close encounters that Heineck listed. Nocturnal lights, daylight discs, and a radar visual. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then first is visual sightings, so seen by the human eye. The first three are, you know, less than 500 feet away that show appreciable angular extension and considerable detail. Mm -hmm. This is according to Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Close encounter is the second kind, a UFO event. Heineck was a Valet's mentor. He was, mm -hmm. he was an older scientist that Valet came from France to... To study with them. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. here we go. Close encounters of the second kind. A UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This can be interference in the functioning of a vehicle or electronic device, animals reacting, physiological events such as paralysis or heat or discomfort in the witness, 
or some physical trace like impressions in the ground, scorched or otherwise affected vegetation or a chemical trace. That second night, every time we saw them, the birds in the marsh around us started making a lot of noise. It's part of the phenomenology. Yeah, right. I like that. Yeah. And what and, and that night there were so many more of them and they were different kinds. And like I saw some of the ones that I oh there was a there was a sound also like a boat propeller that the big ones seemed to make. Like they were like chugging through the sky. And I at this point, you know, I'd spent two weeks like studying uh, like aviation wing lighting and you know the, the silhouettes of different farm <laughs> planes and shit to make yeah, sure that I'm yeah. not just you know because it is you know you can have a lot of visual distortion under the influence of right. psilocybin and it's like totally reasonable to, for me to maybe have mistaken something but the only thing I could find that looked anything like what I saw that first night was in a, uh, a, a document from the 1700s it was like a hand like it was a manuscript hand illustrations of like a clear thing with a big red light on front and a trail of white lights behind it. And I was like, bingo, that, yeah. bingo, that's yeah. a thing. Yeah. And that specifically that it flew in this sine wave pattern mm. and that it was accompanied by like a low humming, like a thrumming noise. A lot of UFOs do, uh, they do fall in a leaf uh, falling pattern, UFOs. They have this weird, leaf, like well, the way a leaf falls. Mm. That's how a lot of UFOs are described as, as moving. So they're yeah, surfing. Possibly. Yeah. Some of the ones that I saw that second night uh, had, they, it almost looked like you were looking into a, a slide of pond water and all the little different critters swimming around in there. And like some of them had two lights up front, so you could tell that they were rotating in whatever this invisible medium was. And they were like spinning and then drifting. This is kind of freaking me out. And like, <laughs> what are we talking about? And those things in particular. UFOs. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and those things in particular seemed to be like attracted to moonlight and like. The, I, those are ones. There's that some I, technology, man. That I did that not see them the first night during the, yeah. the new moon. Um, they seemed like they were sort of gathering, rather than traveling under their own power, like those that first class of thing. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like they were sort of absorbing moonlight and then using it to power themselves for a short distance. Some sort of beings, maybe. That's yeah. So yeah. intense. Yeah. Yeah, and you know we can end it there. Yeah. I mean we that can was, wrap this up. I don't, really need, to, I don't need to say any more about my UFO experiences <laughs> for now. That was good. But you know. I mean, I think that was very, very entertaining. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for indulging me, yeah. guys. That was more was than great. I usually talk. Dude, yeah. that was great, man. Yeah, yeah. that was really show. entertaining. But, you know. Wait, I do have one last thought on The truth is out there. Yeah. And I just forgot it. But not exclusively. It's also dancing in, in and out of us like a clown all the time. I love that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Don't start oh, with the clown again. This is what I was going to say. So, we, since we've all had these sort of this, this UFO experience, <coughs> I think, I mean, I think that. The UFO thing is a shamanistic thing, so it's like we're all. I think we're all shamans. You know, that's why. That's why we're all coincidentally hanging out. I mean, and I think that whatever that phenomena is, it, it's initiating a new generation of people into yeah. something. You know, to the spiritual world. You know, so I like the term magicians. No, yeah, that's mm -hmm. my. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's the term I like. Yeah, I'm, I'm into Crowley and stuff. So yeah, so I think it's. I think it's uh, sort of less. It's less fraught. With potential misunderstanding, is the mic off? Did we kill it? No, it's on. Oh, yeah. it's still gone. Okay. Yeah. So I still have to be careful what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Just I don't know. I've, I've seen you say some pretty crazy shit on Twitter. No. So. Yeah, no, I have. I, I'm prone to fits of angst and. Well, no, but I mean, I just yeah. mean Iliad's, uh, you know, idea of shamanism. Yeah. You know, all those because uh, if you look at Iliad's book and you study any abductee's uh, scenario, it's the same phenomenology. Like, you know, any. Uh, 
shamanistic initiation has the same it has the same phenomena that an, an alien abductee goes through you know the, the body being taken apart by strange beings and putting back together again with objects inside yeah. John actually talks a lot about this in some of his lectures uh, about to about um, the connection between alien abduction and shamanism. Shamanic oh, yeah, well that was, yeah, when I was first thinking about it way back. When I did my first book, I was thinking that uh, there are so many similarities between like what shamans describe when they get captured by these ancestor beings and they take them and pull out their body parts and replace them with crystals or mm. some superior metal or something. Alien yeah, and so they're, they're torn apart and rebuilt and that's why they're invincible because they have this. It's like uh, the Wolverine character in the Marvel universe has these shamanistic. Fuck, dude, that's they, awesome. they put metal inside of his body. And that's totally shaman. He's also tortured. Yeah. Is it tortured? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Well, yeah, yeah, but the shaman is tortured. a sacrifice. And the alien abduction no no phenomenon does sound a lot like that. You know, when they take them on board the ship and it's happening do in, stuff in, to in their new bodies new time, and. Yeah. Add like metal implements. So the difference, the difference yeah. then is that we've graduated from the close encounters of the fourth kind, which are largely non-consensual, to close encounters of the fifth kind, which are in, actually invited, where the seduction is like uh, actually in, in, like initiated. But they were always the human in, they being. were always invited by people who were doing magic, right? Magic was always about it, inviting these beings. And, well, right, but you know, but uh, these beings well, will sometimes catch you anyway. Yeah, so magic invited. is all about a way of how you deal with unknown risks. So you got the unknown unknowns <laughs> and the known knowns and the unknown knowns and well, you know, the four options. Oh yeah, actually, another time, another friend brought up something interesting. So, so I was saying God is uh, basically our idea of the unknown, unknown, right? But he said no, it's actually the non unknowable, unknowable. <laughs> He's right. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> well, the God, the God head. Yeah, there's, there's like, there's we don't no know parts. what the fuck that is. Yeah, and, and our whole journey throughout life is how do we deal with all these unknown risks? Yeah. So that's actually this is the spot. This is the spot to end it because I think from here, normally. I like to end this show asking what what people kind of uh, what message they want to convey to the future, or possibly like what the best possible future they can imagine is. So, in general, uh, I would love to hear each of you take a turn uh, saying something about, in light of all that we have said today, right. <laughs> in light of you know uh, the the hypermodern uh, evaporation of culture into the digital in light of the apparent, persistent, and eradicable non-dual reality of the uh, hyperdimensional harlequin as somehow like a, a perma feature, even if we're not aware of it, um, even if, uh, you know, in light of the fact that we may we may be involved in a time-traveling conspiracy to create the moon, and in, in light of the fact that... that uh, we covered a lot of that shit. Shadowfish. Yeah, yeah, we sure did. In, in light of the fact that... Donkey Kong. That, yeah, the, 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 the fish might be a... Um, you know, might sort of lead to a reverse snow crash in which everyone's speaking their own language, and we all become sort of like uh, cryptographic public-private keys with uh, like brain implants that can communicate to each other. Um, what is the best, sort of like, what kind of best possible future do you envision given everything we know? Like given everything we sort of accept as the case? 
you know, where, uh, where's, where's the, the, the most reasonable sort of the intersection of like what you believe is actually possible mm -hmm. and like the best thing you can imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, so you want us to answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess I can answer that, but I'll say that's almost the wrong answer to ask. It's, uh, it goes back to uh, Taleb's idea of uh, it's not about protecting the future, but about how you position yourself using heuristics so that you can experience the best future without risk of ruin. So, so rather than imagining kind of cool. like a static best future, it's really this flow. It's the you're living the Tao, used basically through this Wu Wei heuristic, where you don't actually have to know what to expect, but you just experience it and you're actually pleasured by all these surprises and just gotta make sure that you can calibrate the risks so that you don't have you don't die before you experience something interesting. Could it be could don't you, die before you experience something interesting? Could you say that, that, that then that the best possible future you can imagine for our species is one in which we all are pleasured by surprise? Uh yeah, so you're you're kind of reincarnating in this like multiplicity of possibilities. Alright. What about you, Mike? So my, th my whole thing is that, you know, we, we think in metaphors, you know, so these are called um, cognitive and or conceptual metaphors. And I think that language, you know, if you look at any language, you realize that there are these metaphor landscapes that a language um, describes. and they're not just figures of speech. Even a figure of speech is an image, you know what I'm saying? So I don't think these things are just um, ways of speaking. They're actual realities that we inhabit. And I think that part of what um, a poet does, let's say, you know, uh, is tunes in to some sort of force that invents new languages that actually is a, a modification of these conceptual metaphors. And, and, and it's all about adaptation. So we're trying to adapt these conceptual metaphors to survive in this contemporary age. You know, so the sort of hypermodern thing for me is really about like some sort of transformation of language where we we discover the right terms, but it's not really about the right terms either because there's no right or wrong. I'm just saying it's more in terms of metaphors. You know, so I'm I'm wanting us to be able to have a language that we can speak that actually gives us a sense of being and a sense of numinosity and dwelling in this hyper-modern landscape so it's not this soulless, um, painful, empty experience that it is for a lot of us. Because we went through this um, contemporary art exhibit at the site uh, museum yesterday and we all left feeling really disorientated, which was kind of cool. It was the effect of the artist and, and he did a good job doing that. but. But it all left us really reminded of how much we've lost some connection to some deeper meaning that when we're all talking, we feel that there's this deeper sense to life. And that's not being captured in art right now. And it's not being captured in the ways that a lot of us are actually speaking. And I actually think it's the poet's job to kind of rediscover what, you know, in a new way, what, the, what those uh, language forms are, what those metaphors are. So um, for me, it's just about experimenting with new new metaphors and, and new ways of using language, and, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Hmm. So would you say that it's, in some sense, it's like the best 
the, 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 the good future is a future in which the poets have done their job by yeah, helping us, I mean, in helping us uh, enjoy yeah. surprise. Well, the poet is the one who approaches the unknowns first, so he, he's exactly the one who basically right. is the canary in the coal mine when approaching these, I, I guess, intellectual risks. Yeah, well, I mean, this is like a Heideggerian idea too. That like it's that that language is not uh, informational. It's not supposed to signify something. Language is supposed to create an oral space, sound space that we inhabit, and that you know brings things to life. And that and that you know that's why he liked um, Helderlin you know, so much because he thought Helderlin was actually doing this for the the in between. He called it between this modernity and whatever is after modernity. You know. And so I think that we're in a space like that right now, and, and we need poets, and we need people like, like us who are describing this hypermodern thing, who can speak some sort of new language that can um, you know, manifest the right kind of conceptual metaphors. And I don't want to use the word right. I, I'm, I'm upset that I keep using the word right, because it's not about being right or wrong. It's just that it's, it's metaphors that are complex enough to allow us to inhabit, or to, in a Heideggerian sense, dwell in hypermodernity, you know, mm -hmm. and so um, and so that's kind of what I'm interested in as a poet, just with yeah. my language games yeah. and stuff like that. So anyway, yeah. So that kind of reminds me of my critique of the intellectual dark web. So there's more to the logos than just reason debate. It's more about there's multiple ways of using it to uh, basically do risk management. That's what it is. It's a medium for risk management. That's a, that's the logos, and when the poet or artist kind of paints this picture that doesn't look very rational, but that's actually part of the logos that you really need to navigate through chaos when there's too many unknown unknowns. That's the horizon that has to be, you know, collapsed into, you know, the, the uh, I sound like John right now. That's how John talks right now. There's a reason we're friends. I'm, I'm yeah. mimeticing, I'm copying John. <laughs> and that, that, uh, that selector is how Richard Doyle describes evolution. Mm -hmm. He says it's it's uh, a, a searching of the information space mm -hmm. for the greatest possible entropy. Yeah. And so, you know, that uh, he says uh, attention consumes information, therefore uh, the role of attention consuming uh, interspecies relationships to create an ever more complex ecosystemic metabolism mm -hmm. is is like what Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, all oh. these other thinkers saw as this self-evolving okay, process that eats everything. Mega man. I need to note this down because the idea I was working on is called metabolic existentialism and trying to work out like basically combining uh, Spangler with McLuhan and uh, and I guess like complex systems to try to figure out how do you do meta history? Well, read Darwin's Pharmacy. This yeah. will be his article in the Hypermodernity Anthology we're putting together. Yeah, because Darwin's and Pharmacy is you, is the legit. I yeah. think it's it's like the sounding shot. Yeah. So on, like right? another aspect of it is my my presentation on uh, how do you understand value and for like part one of it, which is on mythology. I said uh, mythologies are the most valuable signals which survived after stretches filtered out the noisy data over time. Their meanings have been encrypted by black box algorithms of the unconscious mind into symbolism. And when I tweeted this, Gibson or something. Uh, Nassim actually liked this comment. Sweet! Yeah, so I guess I'm on the right track. Yeah, just, awesome, just keep your trolls high. You know? yeah. John, what about you? Uh, well, 
okay, here's what I would say is, in a, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter. It, it's, it's like, um, <laughs> the spirit is always with us, no matter what happens. The, it's, it's not, we're just, we're, we think we're the origin of our actions. We get ideas in our head, concepts, ideas, paradigms, and we think, oh, I have this idea, I'm effectuating this, and it's my own free will, but it's more likely that you're participating in a larger project that has to do with a relationship to the metaphysical other world, and that they're involved with all of this no matter what happens. And so access to that spiritual world is always there. It's like Gebser's ever-present origin. You know, the, the Ursprung is always there, and it's always accessible, and there's always going to be new ideas coming out of that ever-present origin. Yeah, that's what you know? they do in meditation. And those ideas will code uh, for new for cultural formations all we need to do is, is just trust the process. It's like Heidegger's idea of gelassenheit, you know, releasement, let it go. Trust being, listen to being, let it go, hear what it has to say, and follow that. And it's not, you know, everything that happens is utterly something that needs to happen. We just need to have faith in these processes. I love that, man. It'll all work out. That's awesome. And on that note, as you're saying this, I think it's just so delicious to note that I went through that whole thing about the UFOs to get to a point that I was going to make eventually about the mythic significance and inevitability of limitation and constraint and like the moment that confinement, confinement yeah. says okay this is necessary so I think that's actually the perfect place to uh, lock this conversation off yeah, this, is, this has been a blast. Man. Yeah, so the constraint is actually there's there's more. We have to do this. Which is, uh, He's like, no, wait a minute! I was just getting started. Yeah, I so, want my fucker. So, so here's, you guys I, yeah. I went through this whole conversation without even bringing up Lev Shestov. So Shestov, he wrote this book called Athens and Jerusalem, and he's all about how faith is actually the way you overcome dogma because. It's like a way of you going beyond the necessities. Everyone's constraining themselves with these necessities. And he said, no, you should be open to these Black Swan events. And you open up your consciousness, and basically that's how you deal with risks. And the, he had this one um, article, not article, he had this one passage. It's like an aphorism in his book, All Things Are Possible, about these fish. So he had... Uh, the story is like these predatory fish and these little fish, right? They put a they put a little glass screen between them. So every time the predatory fish wants to eat the small fish, it would just run into the glass. Right. But then yeah. they remove the glass and the uh, and they think that barrier is yeah, still they, there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we have to tempt that barrier, and that process is basically faith, and that's also uh, how you get to technological innovation. That's yeah, a great that's really place cool. to call it. Thanks. That was great. Thanks, you guys. This was my funnest conversation that I've ever had, ever. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned, because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.